it was a long way to Jerusalem. And on his way, Jesus had to pass through Jericho. And in Jericho, there were two people who were desperate to see Jesus, but who couldn't. The first couldn't because actually he was blind. And he spent his whole time by the side of the road begging. And that particular day, he knew there were more people than coming past than usual. The road was busier. So he said, what's going on? What's happening? And people said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And he knew this was his chance to see Jesus. So he began to shout, Jesus! Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me! Jesus! I want to see you, Jesus! Now you would have thought, wouldn't you, that people would, would help him? They'd come alongside and say, well, we'll introduce you to Jesus. But they didn't actually. People had no time for him at all. They told him to shut up. Keep quiet. It's none of your business. Just butt out of it. He shouted louder. Jesus! Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me! Jesus! Want to see you, Jesus! And he heard this voice say, who's that talking? And he heard people say, it's just a blind man by the side of the road. And he heard this voice saying, bring him to me. And so, yeah, people got into his feet and brought him and they said, this is Jesus, he wants to meet you. And the blind man heard Jesus say to him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And he touched the man and his eyes opened and he could see Jesus and he could see everything around him, and he joined the crowd and followed Jesus into town. And in town there was another man who wanted to see Jesus, and he couldn't, because he was short. And, and there were people lying in the streets and getting in the way, and he tried to find his way to the front of the crowd, but people wouldn't let him in, because they didn't like him very much. He was a tax collector. So they hated him for taking their money, They hated him for giving it to the Romans and they hated him because they knew a large amount of what they give went in his own pocket. So when he kind of got there and tried to find his way through, they kind of elbowed him out of the way, wouldn't let him in. So he couldn't see Jesus because other people didn't like him. But he was determined he was going to get to see Jesus if he could. And so he saw there was a tree, so he... (laughs) He went over... And he got up in a tree, and no one was in his way then. And he looked at the procession coming along. And then suddenly Jesus stopped and looked up at him and called him by name. Zacchaeus! What are you doing up in that tree? Come on down, I'm coming to your house today for tea. Zacchaeus couldn't believe it. He came down off the tree. Thank you, Jesus, I'd love you to come to my house. And and Zacchaeus was delighted. Everybody else grumbled. What's Jesus doing? Going to the house of of a worthless swindler like that. And Jesus said, enough. Okay? This man is as much a son of Abraham as any of you. And if along along the way he's lost his way, that's why I came, he said. The son of man came to seek and to save People who are lost. Two people in Jericho. Nobody had time for them. The blind man, nobody had time for him. Zacchaeus, nobody had time for him. Jesus had time for them both. 
And you might feel as if no one's got time for you, no one bothers about you, no one likes you, you're just excluded and put to one side. Jesus knows you. And he wants to welcome you and say, you belong to me. You belong to my family. That day the blind man called out to Jesus and Jesus heard him. Jesus called out to Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus heard him. Today, if you want to call out to Jesus, he's going to hear you. If he's calling your name, answer him and say, yes, Lord, here I am. Because he welcomes you into his home, into his family, and says, you, you belong. Please be seated. intercessions. This morning we shall be looking at Brexit again. We shall also be praying for the Thursday Lunch Club and for youth after church as they spend the next few days away together at St. Bart's near Lewis. And we shall also pray for the less fortunate children in our society. Let us pray. Father God, we bring before you now the politicians who are struggling to come to some form of agreement, despite there being no consensus in Parliament and many different solutions being aired on all sides. Living Christ, you are present with us at all times, sharing the brightness of our joy and walking with us through times of darkness. You speak words of wisdom into our foolishness and words of reassurance into our fear. You seek out those who are lost and looking for the way. In these times of confusion, uncertainty, and anxiety about our nation's future, we need your wisdom, your reassurance, and your compassion. Speak to us all, leaders, citizens, residents, those with a voice, and those whose voices seem never to be heard. We lay before you the life of our nation, and long for your sovereign rule to be established amongst us. As our leaders try to make decisions that will address an impasse, give them wisdom and a true capacity for discernment, so that at the forefront of their thinking is not political advantage, but the well-being of the people. As people are anxious about what the future holds, help us to build a community in which all feel welcome and heard, and where a truer sense of belonging to one another is established. As we witness heated arguments that could so readily turn to aggression, steady us and inspire in us all your gentleness that we may curb attitudes that lead to strife. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who sought to welcome the stranger to bind up the brokenhearted, and to pave the way for costly peacemaking. Amen. We now bring before you, Lord, the Thursday Lunch Club, which regularly provides nourishment and fellowship for our senior citizens. Please be with the leaders and helpers as they prepare the meals and transport their guests 
to and from their homes. And be with the speaker this week, Alison Edwards, as she brings God's word to them. We pray that each guest may receive your welcome and know your love and respond to the call of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Father God, we pray for all our young people. We pray for those who are leaving for St. Bart's tomorrow. We ask that they will have a happy few days together, building up relationships and friendships. We thank you for the leaders, Marion, Ryan, Ben and Susan, for giving of their free time to teach and encourage teenagers. We ask that each youngster will be drawn to you and meet with you in some way, that each one will know your love and saving grace and be challenged for the future and guided towards the place you have for them in your world. Grant them safety, your love, your joy, and your peace. Amen. Heavenly Father, we now pray for young people who live without hope, without homes, without loving families, who live in fear of abuse, whether it be intimidatory, discriminatory, sexual, physical, psychological, emotional, financial, or neglect. We thank you, Lord, for organizations such as the Children's Society, Centerpoint, the Message Trust, and many others who serve you by helping them and caring for these children as they go through unmanageable horrors which no child should experience. We praise you, O Lord, for raising up people who are prepared to serve in the most diabolical circumstances to bring love and your word to those who suffer and struggle with life. Finally, we ask in the silence to remember those who are suffering with pain, illness or bereavement. Place your loving arms round them, Lord, and give them reassurance and peace. Amen. We bring these prayers to you in the thankfulness and praise in the name of your only Son, whose love surpasses understanding, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, the reading is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. But um, the first ten verses, we are told of Zacchaeus, or Tim has already told us about him, <coughs> who climbed a tree to see Jesus. And when Jesus sees him, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' home. And then everyone starts grumbling about sinners. So Jesus has to point out that he came to save the sick and the lost. So now we'll continue with the reading. And while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants whom he had, to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. 
the first ones came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, the master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you do not put in and reap what you do not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own word, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I came back I should have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Suppose someone gave you three years' worth of wages as a lump sum. What would you do with it? Would you pay off the mortgage if you still need to? Would you splash out on those things you've always wanted but never been able to afford? Would you invest it? while you figured out the best way of making use of it. One thing I can almost guarantee that you wouldn't do would be wrap the cash up in a piece of cloth and stash it away in a cupboard. Of all the things you could do with a large amount of money, that surely is the worst option. Three years' wages is a considerable sum of money. There would be, obviously, more for some of us here than for others. But my point is that 10 minas, that is the kind of amount of money that you're talking about that this nobleman entrusted to his servants before he went away to seek investiture as ruler over his lands. This was no paltry sum. This was not just a few quid. It was a big amount of cash. And he wanted them to do something with it. To invest it, start up a business with it, trade it, make a profit out of it, but to actually use it in a significant and worthwhile way. And some of the servants did better than others. We only hear about what happened to three of them. The first must have been a real entrepreneur, because he multiplied his stake ten times over. And his master was delighted with him and appointed him ruler over ten cities. The next man we hear about hadn't done quite so well, but his trading yielded a return of 500%, so he was entrusted with responsibility for five cities. And you get the principle, you see how this is going to work. So Luke doesn't bother going through all ten servants. 
But instead he concentrates on the one who did nothing with what he was given. He returns to his master the exact sum he received. No more, no less. And he says, Sir, here is your money. I've kept it safe in a handkerchief. You're a hard man and I was afraid of you. You take what isn't yours and you harvest crops you didn't plant. And his master is is angry and can't believe that this servant didn't at least put it in the bank so that it would earn a degree of interest, interest rates being what they are. But he takes the money away from the servant and gives it to the servant who'd been most successful and warns that those who have something will be given more, but everything will be taken away from those who have nothing. So, did the servant judge his master correctly? Was his master a hard man? Clearly, in some respects, he was, as is shown by the ruthless way in which he deals with those who tried to prevent him from becoming king. He ordered them to be executed before his eyes. So clearly, those who opposed him had every reason to be afraid of him. And you can see, perhaps, why the unprofitable servant had good reason to be afraid himself then. Here was a man who was totally risk-averse. I don't want to, to, to do anything that might mean I lose some of this money, and so I'm not going to do anything with it. That's the safest way of ensuring I don't lose it. And it was like his fear paralysed him to the point when he was incapable of making a wise decision. He had been entrusted, yes, with a large amount of money, and he'd been told to do something with it, to make good use of it. The master would have understood had he taken a risk, done his best, and the risk hadn't worked out. Yet simply to do nothing... Yes, that guarantees that you're not going to lose any of the money, but also it guarantees that you are not doing as you've been told. Because he was told to make something of it. And he really only made matters worse for himself by suggesting that, well, if, if you, sir, had been more kind and considerate, I would have behaved differently. Actually, it's the, the, the problem is, is you. It's not what I've done, it, it's the kind of person that you are. What was his motive in doing nothing? Well, he clearly didn't feel adequate for the level of responsibility he'd been given. Perhaps he felt that he'd been set up to fail. He knew his master would expect and want a good return on the investment, and he was so afraid of failure, of losing what he'd been given, that he decided the best and safest course was simply to do nothing. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, nothing lost either. And a bit of him felt the whole scenario was unfair. Why should he take the risk to make money for his master. He thought he knew that any profit would end up in the master's pockets rather than his own, and if he lost the money, he was the one who'd bear the responsibility for that. And if his boss had been a nicer, kinder man, someone who's less concerned with making a profit, then the servant would not have been so afraid of the consequences of failure. That at least is the kind of stuff he was saying to himself. That at least was how he was trying to justify his failure to do anything. But actually, he has misjudged the situation. He thought his master merely wanted to see how much money his servants could make for him while he was away, so that he could gather what he hadn't sown himself and reap the reward of their hard work on his behalf. But did you notice uh, the guy who makes ten more minas is put in charge of ten cities and he gets to keep the ten minas? 
and the spare mina that the worthless servant doesn't do anything, that goes to him as well. So actually the master didn't rake back in all the profits. He allowed the successful servants to keep what he'd given them. He was actually quite a generous man rather than a stingy man. The point of the exercise was not to maximise the master's profit. He was going away so that he could secure his own appointment as king over his territories. That was how it worked in those days in the Roman Empire. Rome governed its client kingdoms through local rulers who had to make their case and seek appointment to their kingdom. Herod the Great had had to do this. Archelaus' son had to do this. But Archelaus was so unpopular with his subjects that they sent a delegation after him asking Caesar not to appoint him as their king. So like the best Hollywood films, Jesus' parable was based on actual events. This really happened. Archelaus was the nobleman who went away looking to be made king and his subjects sent a delegation after him saying, no, we don't want this man to be our king. And in Archelaus' case, he wasn't appointed king of the whole country. He only got half of what his father ruled and he was told, if you do a good job with that you can have responsibility for the other half. But in the end, he reigned for 10 years and did such a bad job that his subjects appealed to Caesar again to have him deposed. And he ended up being sent away into exile in Gaul. That's why in Jesus' lifetime, Judea was governed directly uh, through governors like Pontius Pilate by Rome. Now, to get back to the parable, as far as the ruler in Jesus' parable was concerned, his aim in giving all this money to his servants wasn't to make himself a prophet because he let them keep the money that they'd made. He knew that if he was appointed king, he would need wise, responsible, capable leaders who could govern local areas on his behalf. And that's precisely what happened. The man who multiplied his stake ten times over was put in charge of ten cities, and so on. So the servant did actually completely misjudge his master. The whole point of the exercise was not for the master to make more money. His aim was to discover which of the servants he could trust enough to do a good job so he could give them the immeasurably greater responsibility of governing local areas in his kingdom on his behalf. And so far from being the kind of man who merely wanted to extract from his servants as much as he possibly could at no cost to himself, he was actually quite a generous man. The servant had misjudged his master. He'd given each of them a stash of money, told them to trade with it, because he wanted to give them responsibility. And he wanted to find out whether they would prove trustworthy in this task. And so he gives them this initial task to see how they will do. And it was a good test, because some clearly excelled, and one servant at least was a disaster. In failing to do anything at all, his servant showed himself to be totally unfit for purpose. And it wasn't just the money that was wasted, it was the time. It doesn't take very long to wrap up a stash of cash in a handkerchief and put it in a cupboard. What did he do with the rest of the time that his master was away? It was time that was entirely unprofitable, time that was entirely wasted. All he was thinking about was, how can I explain to my master when he gets back what I've done? or what I haven't done. He had failed to understand, actually, that what he'd been given was an opportunity. An opportunity to do something amazing. 
an opportunity to do something really worthwhile, a chance to shine, to show what he was capable of, to put himself in line for the ultimate promotion. But as the saying goes, the problem with opportunity is it doesn't come gift-wrapped. You have to take risks. And he wasn't going to do that. He was afraid of what might happen if he risked and failed. So he played it safe and didn't do anything at all. And that actually, ironically, resulted in the thing he'd been most anxious to avoid. He had wanted to avoid his master's anger and displeasure. But by doing nothing, that is precisely what he brought upon himself. His master had been prepared to trust him by giving him the money to invest. And he'd failed because he was afraid of the consequences of failure. And it was his fear, actually, that lay behind that, that picture of his master as being a harsh and vengeful man who re- demanded results without giving anything. Blinded him to the bigger picture, which was the way in which his master wanted him to have a chance to realise his potential. Why did Jesus tell this parable? It's because God has given us gifts. And he hasn't given us gifts like a harsh taskmaster who wants to micromanage our lives and force us to follow the boring tram lines he has predetermined for us. God has given you gifts and he wants you to make the most of what he's given you for him. In the parable, the master gave his servants ten minas and told them to do business with him. On your chair is a piece of paper with numbers one to ten on it. And I'm going to invite you to take that home. I've given you the piece of paper so you don't forget about it. Take it home. And in a moment of quietness this week, see if you can think of ten things that God has given you. Ten things that God has said. This is, this is your life. Uh, just, just ten things that are God's gifts to you. And then... What does God want me to do with these things? If these are resources that God has given me to use in a worthwhile way, God, what do you want me to do with this stuff? How do you want me to make use of it? How can I make something worthwhile out of the life and the gifts and the resources that you have entrusted to me? And remember, okay, This is not a test. He doesn't watch you as a merciless judge waiting to punish you severely if you fail. This is an opportunity. God has given you what he's given you because he wants you to make the most of the opportunities that these gifts represent. To live the life he has given you to the max. Not to think small, but actually to dream big about what you could do with what God has given you. Because if you do well, if you succeed, there is so much more that God has in mind. But remember that your mindset is important. Don't be like the servant who is too scared to have a go. I'm not going to do anything because the risks are too great. I'm scared of what might happen. God's given you the gifts. And let yourself be carried along 
by the confident goodness of a God who's happy to have dialogue with you as a human being and be prepared to take personal initiatives in the service of the word of God. Risk a little. This is the God who looks at you, who knows what gifts he's given you, knows what you are capable of and says, go on, have a go, give it a try. See what you might be able to do with what I've given you, because I've given it to you for you to make the most of it. So that you can realise all the potential for goodness I've placed in your life. You see, following Jesus has never been about playing it safe. Never, at any point. Taking up your cross and following Jesus has never been the safe option to do. It's always been about taking the risk of putting your life in his hands, accepting what he gives to you, and looking to make the most of it. Looking to make the best of it. Recognising that your life is God's gift to you, and he wants you to live it to the full. But it starts with recognising actually that he's the God of grace, the God of mercy, who loves and accepts you. And if you, if you make the mistake, then there's the forgiveness there. There's the grace, the acceptance there. What he's not happy with is if we say, no, don't want to. No, not going to. No, I'm scared to. He's given you whatever ten things you write on your piece of paper. And he says, these are my gifts to you. This is your life. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to use it? The time that you've got, how are you going to live it to the full? Because he wants you to make the most of his gift of life to you. Thank you. Amen. Indeed.